I'll tell you, I feel like we've already been uh, preached at a couple times today, haven't we? And uh, since I've already prepared something, I figure I'd just go ahead and give you what I got too. So, um, but what a what a blessing, what a blessing to be here today. Let's pray. Gracious, merciful God. We've just lifted up to you in song just the, the joy of our hearts as we contemplate the reality that one day, because of Christ, we will see you and we'll be home. Lord, and the, the more this place undergoes decay, The more we look in the mirror and see ourselves undergoing the same fate, we long for home. And one day it will be a reality. We praise and thank you for that, Father. Today we ask that you would guide us as we seek to understand your word so that we might live it authentically before those around us, the sphere of influence you've placed us in, and our lives might make a difference for eternity, that there may be people in glory with us because you were at work in us as we journeyed toward home. You gave us the courage to speak up, to let people know the hope we have inside of us because of Jesus. And it's that hope and the reason for that hope that we turn our attention this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The mother of a, a nine-year-old boy named Mark received a phone call in the middle of the afternoon. It was the teacher from her son's school. Mrs. Smith, something unusual happened today in your son's third grade class. Your son did something that surprised me so much that I thought I should, that you should know about it immediately. Well, the mother began to grow worried. The teacher continued, Nothing like this has happened in all my years of teaching. This morning, I was teaching a lesson on creative writing. And as I always do, I tell the story of the ant and the grasshopper. The ant works hard all summer and stores up plenty of food, but the grasshopper plays all summer and does not work. And winter comes, and the grasshopper begins to starve because he has no food. So he begins to beg, please, Mr. Ant, you have much food. Please let me eat too. And then I said, boys and girls, your job is to write the ending of the story. Your son Mark raised his hand. Teacher, may I draw a picture? Yes, you may, Mark, but first you must write the ending of the story. As in all years past, most of the students said the ant shared his food with through the winter and both the ant and the grasshopper lived. 
few children wrote, no, Mr. Grasshopper, you should have worked in the summer. Now I have just enough food for myself. So the ant lived and the grasshopper died. But your son ended the story in a way different than any other child ever. He wrote, So the ant gave all of his food to the grasshopper. The grasshopper lived through the winter, but the ant died. In the picture, at the bottom of the page, Mark drew three crosses. That nine-year-old boy understood the essence of the gospel better than many adults do. You see, the grasshopper deserved to die, but got to live. Because the ant, who deserved to live, willingly chose to die. And just like the grasshopper, you and I deserve to die because of our sin. But we get to live because Jesus, who deserved to live, willingly chose to die. That's the essence of the gospel. We have been privileged to be benefactors of that reality. A couple weeks ago, we began looking in preparation for our celebration of the death, burial, and resurrection on Easter weekend. We began looking at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. Two weeks ago, we looked, the last two weeks, we looked at the first of those sayings where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And we talked about the, the fact that we learn something about Jesus in that statement, and we learn that Jesus is a forgiving God. We talked about how Jesus offered himself to pay the price so that he could offer that forgiveness. And then last week, we talked about what we're supposed to do in response to that, if you will. How we're then to live in light of who Jesus is as a forgiving God. We're supposed to also extend forgiveness to our fellow human beings. Today, we want to look at another of those sayings, though it's not the second in progression I chose this one because of our theme of worship and our celebration of communion. And we find this in Matthew chapter 27. It's the only statement in Matthew and Mark's gospel account. The other six are found in Luke and John. But in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46, We know that Jesus spent six hours on the cross from the, the uh, 9 o'clock in the morning till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But we're told here in these few verses, verse 45 and 46, now from the sixth hour, and that would be noon, our time frame, Darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
What we learn from this statement, this saying from the cross, is that Jesus was a forsaken son. He was forsaken by God, his father. Why? So that through his forsakenness, we might be embraced, received, restored to right relationship with God. As we consider this reality and the, and the, the words Jesus spoke and what happened in, those, in that time frame between the sixth hour and the ninth hour, between noon and 3 p.m., we see, first of all, that Jesus experienced the righteous requirement for sin. When we look through Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, we see Jesus' words referring to and describing the eternal punishment in a place called hell. There are three primary concepts that come from the things that Jesus said and the way he described this. The first, he talks about it being a fiery hell. Right? We see in Scripture, like in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said that the accursed one, he said that they were to go into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. We see in Revelation 20 at this, what's referred to as the great white throne judgment, where unbelievers will stand before the Lord. It talks about death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this idea of fire, some believe literal fire, others believe that is a, a figurative thing that points to some form of punishment and suffering of some kind. And regardless of whether you see literally or, or symbolically, the reality is, the scripture very clear, talks about there's going to be torment, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be pain that's going to be experienced in this place called hell. For those who do not have their name written in the book of life, and how does one get their name written in the book of life? By putting their faith in Jesus Christ and trusting that what he accomplished on the cross was sufficient to pay for their sin. Another image that is used in Scripture that is that of darkness. Matthew 25, 30, Jesus again is talking, and he says that about this worthless slave. He says, cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so this, this place is, is referred to as a place of darkness. That seems to be part of the punishment that is uh, attached to those who suffer because they have put their trust in Christ. And then the third is that of separation, separation from God. In fact, we talk about this, talked about this in weeks past, is that the word death means separation. And so we see in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9, the Apostle Paul again talking about what's going to happen to those who do not know Christ. He says, God is dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. To obey the gospel is to, again, put our trust in Christ and to walk in, 
in light of that. And then he says in verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord <clears throat> and from the glory of his power. And so this idea of being separated from the presence of God is another concept that is, that is uh, talked about in this place called hell. Then we go to, uh, the, to Luke's gospel, and we see in Luke 16, we see this story that Jesus told in verses 19 to 31, where Jesus is telling a story about uh, a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And in this story, we have the only account in all the Bible where we have a person who is in this place and giving a first-hand account of what it's like there. Now again, commentators speculate, is this something that Jesus is telling that is a fact that happened and Jesus knows about it because he's God, or is Jesus simply telling kind of a parable? Again, we don't know that because Jesus doesn't indicate in the text whether or not it is a story he's telling to, to teach something or whether he's recounting something that literally happened. Either way, Jesus is recounting what is the case. He's not going to tell us a story about hell and not tell us the truth. And so we find in this story these concepts of torment and being separated, not being able to bridge the gap, if you will, being separated from God and from His presence and from His people. And this person was in agony and was a place of torment. If you will read that story, you see these concepts. And these are the things that are described when talking about this place. So when we think about Jesus experiencing the punishment, if you will, or the requirements for sin, we see as we look at what Jesus experienced just on the cross. He experienced all of these things. He experienced conscious suffering. Even before he went to the cross, we see in, in his trial before Pilate, Pilate was trying to get him released because Pilate believed he was innocent. But Pilate was too, uh, too fearful of the crowd to do what he knew should be done. So he thought, well, maybe if I scourge him, and if I scourge him enough, the people will have some compassion and they will, they will let him be released. And so we're told that he was scourged by the Roman soldiers. D.A. Carson explains just briefly, he says about the scourging, he said, among the Jews, scourging was limited to 40 lashes. Typically, they would go to 39. But he said the Romans were, not, were restricted by nothing but their strength and whim. The whip was the dreaded flagellum made by plating pieces of bone or lead into leather thongs at the end of the whip. The victim was stripped and tied to a post, and severe flogging not only reduced the flesh to bloody pulp, but could open up the body until the bones were visible and the entrails exposed. It was often used to weaken the body before crucifixion. So we find Jesus experienced this incredible suffering. And then he went to the cross. And then he was nailed to the cross and crucified. 
John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, writes about this. <clears throat> he says, Crucifixion seems to have been invented by barbarians on the edge of the known world and taken over from them by both the Greeks and the Romans. It is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced, for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The victim could suffer for days before dying. When the Romans adopted it, they reserved it for criminals convicted of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery, provided they were also slaves, foreigners, or other non-persons. goes on to say, Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion except in extreme cases of treason. Cicero, one of the emperors, said in one of his speeches condemned it as a most cruel and disgusting punishment. A little later he declared, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him is an abomination, to kill him is almost an act of murder, to crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. Jesus experienced that for six hours. He experienced conscious suffering as he hung upon the cross. Not because he deserved it. He willingly did so. out of love for you and me. We also see in the text that I read already here in, in Matthew 27 that Jesus experienced physical darkness. Again, darkness was an image describing uh, the punishment that people will receive if they do not receive Jesus Christ. He experienced physical darkness for three hours. From noon until 3 p.m., darkness came over the land. Again, people look back and say, well, it was probably a, um, a solar eclipse. It may have been. We don't know. We're not told that. But it was probably darker than that. You recall a couple years ago, we had a solar eclipse here. And it, was it wasn't that dark, right, in the middle of the day. It just doesn't get that dark. It's neat. It's a really cool thing to experience. But we're given this indication that darkness fell upon the land like nighttime. <clears throat> darkness in Scripture is an image of both evil <clears throat> as well as judgment. In John chapter 1, 4 and 5, we're told when, when speaking about Jesus as the Word, and it says that in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, <clears throat> And the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. That is an image of Jesus being light, and the darkness being evil, and the darkness could not overpower or overcome him as the light. In John chapter 13, when Jesus was speaking with Judas there in the upper room, and he told Judas that he was going to be the one who would betray him, and he gave him the morsel, and the scripture says, and after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately into the night. I believe John is using that term not to just say it was nighttime, 
He's saying he went out into the darkness. He went out into the evil. And even when Jesus in the garden, when the, when the soldiers came and the chief priests and the, and the officers of the temple came out against him, Jesus said, have you come out with swords and clubs against me as a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. <clears throat> Again, Scripture continues to reiterate this idea that darkness is a picture of evil and is a picture, picture of judgment by God. Jesus experienced that. Darkness. <clears throat> In fact, we read, uh, we read uh, MacArthur's explanation of what happened during those, six, uh, those three hours of darkness when Jesus experienced the, the, the consequences uh, of sin. Actually, before I, before I read that, I want to say this. How fitting it is that Jesus in His birth, ex, there was an experience of miraculous light. Right? Again, people want to talk about supernovas and all these things, that, that star that was so bright in the sky. And again, maybe that was the thing that God used, but there was something miraculous at Jesus' birth there was a bright light pointing to Jesus that led the, the, the Magi to him. And then at Jesus' death, there was a miraculous darkness that symbolized God's wrath being poured out upon his son. The light shows God's favor. This is my beloved son. The angels proclaimed him. The Savior has come. And now God pours out darkness. <clears throat> Why? Because it's in that three hours of darkness that Jesus experienced spiritual separation from the Father. What he said is a quotation from Psalm 21, 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This psalm, if you go back and read it, you realize, especially now that you know about the crucifixion of Jesus, you go back and you read this psalm, which everyone understands to be a messianic psalm, that is a psalm that was written to look ahead to the Messiah, as David wrote that. We look back now after having understood the crucifixion and we realize he's explaining crucifixion. Jesus was literally fulfilling Psalm 22 as he hung on the cross. Most likely meditating upon that psalm as he speaks it from his lips in these moments. And it was during that time, I believe, that Jesus experienced the punishment that we deserve while he hung on the cross. And those, the first three hours of light, I think that was Satan's time. What was Satan trying to do? He was mocking Jesus. He was ridiculing him. He was trying to get Jesus to, to, to get, come off the cross. If you're the Son of God, if, you, if you're all this, then come down off that cross. Call the angels to come and deliver you. Why? Why would Satan want him off the cross? 
I believe, because Satan knew that if he, if he finished this, this course he was on, Satan was defeated. But it's the last three hours that were God. And darkness came upon him. And I believe that God, the Father, turned his back on his son. And MacArthur says this, in this unique and strange miracle, Jesus was crying out in anguish because of the separation he now experienced from his heavenly Father for the first and only time in all of eternity. It is the only time of which we have record that Jesus did not address God as Father because the Son had taken sin upon himself and the Father turned his back. That mystery is so great and imponderable that it is not surprising that Martin Luther is said to have gone into seclusion for a long period of time trying to understand it and came away as confused as when he went in. In some way and by some means, in the secrets of divine sovereignty and, and omnipotence, the God-man was separated from God for a brief time at Calvary as the furious wrath of the Father was poured out on the sinless Son who in matchless grace became sin for those who believe in Him. <clears throat> Something incredible happened in those three hours. Now we cannot explain, but because of it, we have a relationship with God. John Star I'm sorry, James Boyce writes this. The darkness was sent by the Father to shield Jesus during the hours he was made sin for us. These were private hours. It is as if God had shut the bronze doors of heaven upon Jesus so that what transpired during those hours happened between himself and Jesus alone. Jesus experienced on the cross the righteous requirement for sin. He experienced conscious suffering. He experienced physical darkness. He experienced spiritual separation. <clears throat> so then what do we learn from this? Well, first of all, we learn that because of what he did, our sins have been paid for. And God offers, because of that, a free gift to us. The gift of being forgiven of our sin and the gift of eternal life. To spend eternity with Him. And we receive that gift as we've talked about over and over again. We receive it by placing our trust in what Jesus did. By entrusting ourselves and our eternity in His hands and what He accomplished there. Believing that that was enough. I don't have to do anything to warrant that. I don't have to do anything to gain that. I don't have to do anything to prove to God that I'm somehow worthy of the blood of Jesus because I'm not. And there's nothing I could ever do to show that. It is His work on my behalf. And so I receive it by faith and trust Him. And then what happens when, when we do that? Something happens inside of us. First of all, there's a transaction in glory that takes place. We move from being a sinner to a saint. We go from being one who is condemned to death and separation from God to one who is brought to life and now is seated in the heavenlies with Christ. It's our position. 
And God begins a work in us of changing our life from the inside out. Begins to stir within us a desire to live a life that honors Him. Not because I have somehow proved that He was worth it and I'm worthy of it. No, but because I'm not worthy of it. And now I'm so grateful that what Christ has done for me. And I want to live in such a way as to honor Him with my life. I'm not going to do it perfectly. I'm going to trip up along the way. Because I'm in process, as you are, right? As He's restoring us and renewing us. But there's something that grows inside of us, a desire for these things. But we also see demonstrated for us through Jesus is that Jesus demonstrated the right response to suffering. He experienced suffering to such a degree that we will never. But his, how he responded to this, how he handled this, provides an example for us. Two things, quickly. He, he cried out to God. Right? We see that right in the text. He cried out to the Lord in a loud voice. But notice that his cry was in accordance with the Word of God. He used the Scriptures to guide his prayer. Again, you know, you can read commentaries and they, they will debate on whether or not uh, what, what was going on here. Was Jesus really uh, crying out in despair? Or was Jesus quoting Psalm 22 because he was thinking about that and that was... We don't know because it doesn't tell us this. But we know Jesus experienced incredible suffering and, and this separation. And so I'm sure there was an element that he was experiencing in his human form, this despair. And yet, what did he do to voice his prayer and his crying out to God? He used Scripture. It gave him the voice. And he was praying in accord with the Word of God. And the thing that I love about Scripture is Scripture gives us the ability to, to, to voice our prayers to God. The Psalms particularly. No matter how you're feeling, no matter what you're experiencing, there is somewhere in the Psalms where you can go to find a prayer, to find something that relates to what you're going through. If you're excited about what's going on and you're just feeling so much joy, you find scriptures, psalms that talk about praising God and you begin to read through those psalms and, they, and then you pray that to God and you are praying the very words of God and you know what you're praying is in accord with His will because it's His word. When you're in despair and you feel like there's no way out of this situation, there are psalms to go to for that as well. When you, when you are just screwed up, and you, you need to confess your sin, and you want to walk this, this path of, of uh, repentance, there are psalms you can go to. Because David wasn't a perfect man. And David screwed up royally. And then we have these psalms, like Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, that provide for us the words to be able to, to respond to God biblically in our prayers. So that our crying out to God is in accord with the Word of God. We have other places in Scripture where they just lend themselves to this. You know, prayers that are written in, in Scripture for us. Paul's prayers. The prayer Jesus taught us to pray. 
The older I get, the more I appreciate that prayer. I grew up in a, in a tradition that kind of looked down on that because other traditions would quote the Lord's Prayer in their service and they would repeat it, recite it word for word, and that's what they would do. And so the, those in the tradition I grew up in kind of looked at that and said, ah, they're just, they're just doing rote prayers. Like Jesus. And, they're, they're, and, and how do we know that? Now, obviously, that can be the case. Anytime we recite something word for word, we can do it without thinking, and it becomes rote, and it becomes meaningless in many ways. But that doesn't mean it's not a, an incredible piece of, of um, truth that God has given us to utilize. It provides for us a model for how we are to pray. As we say, our Father who art in heaven, we realize we're reminded He is our Father, and He sits on the throne of heaven. And we can praise him for that. Right? And we, we, we talk about, may your word be hallowed. And then we, it prompts us to pray, God, this day, would you bring glory to your name through my life? And may your kingdom come. And Lord, may I be part of bringing your kingdom into this, into this place in which I live. And God, would you raise up people all over the world and send them out as sent ones to take the gospel of the kingdom of Christ to this world. And we, it prompts us to pray the things that God wants us to pray. Instead of, oh, God, you know what? I'm really going through some crappy stuff right now, and I'm, I'm sick and tired of it. And would you get me out of my problem? Right? That's kind of how we, we kind of look at things. And then we, we just pray what, what we feel instead of praying what God says. Jesus prayed the word of God as he cried out to God. And secondly, he entrusted himself to God. One of the other sayings that we'll look at here in a few weeks is in Luke 23, 46, when it says, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He entrusted himself excuse me, to God. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 21-24, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's the example. Jesus, while he suffered, did not retaliate, did not react in his flesh. But he entrusted what he was going through to the Father. And so what an example to us of how to walk through difficult stuff. I don't understand why it's happening. I wish it wasn't happening. God, if you would take it away, I would be so thankful. But I trust you. You know what you're doing. You have a plan, and it's a good plan. You love me, and so you have a good plan for my life. And because you're sovereign, and you know what you're in control, and you know all things, you bring about something I can't see right now, but I trust you. How, how different that is. It doesn't change your circumstance, but it changes your heart and your perspective on it. And you walk through that 
keeping your eyes fixed on the one who can be trusted. That's what Jesus did. That's how he walked through this incredible suffering. And he provides for us an example how to do that. So we see that Jesus was a forsaken son, but he is no longer a forsaken son. Because God was pleased with the sacrifice. And he raised him from the dead. And he raised him back to glory. And he is now seated at the right hand of his father. And he is praying for you and I. And every time the enemy wants to accuse you of something and, and say, oh, look, at, look at her. She, she didn't live up to what she claimed. She didn't keep her word. Look at him. And he, he gave in to that again. He's not worthy to be a child of God. And Jesus says, excuse me. I paid that for that. I paid the price for that. Be gone from me. Because of Jesus. So when we understand that, man, it puts a, a motivation in our heart to say, I want to live for him. The one who loved me that much. The one who showed his love to me that much. He's the one I want to live for. Stand. Bow down with me. Father, we recognize that we're all <laughs> different stages in this restoration process. We recognize, Lord, that there may be some who in the hearing of my voice right now, whether online or in person here, that are outside of this whole thing because they have yet to recognize their need for a Savior. But today, Father, I pray, just, just in, in hearing the words of Jesus and the reality of what He experienced, they might come to understand it was our sin that required Jesus to go to the cross. Ours collectively and, and individually. And so we need a Savior. And that Savior is none other than the one who gave His life on Calvary. Jesus the Christ. And when we confess our sins, confess our trust in Jesus. Laying the weight of our confidence on Him and Him alone, we receive the gift of eternal life. And we're brought into the workshop. And He begins that process in a practical way of restoring us. Oh Lord, thank You for that. Thank you for the work you are doing in each of our lives. God, may you give us opportunities this week as we go forth to let the glory of what you are doing in our lives be evident. For Jesus said, they will see our good works and glorify our Father we let our light shine. And so God, may we 
allow you to put on display the glory of your restoring work in our lives. As we seek to live an authentic life before others. And God, give us the courage to open our mouth when the, when the time is right to speak about the good news of Jesus. Would you give us the privilege this week as we go forth from here as those who are sent on a mission to reflect this good news of Jesus Christ that we've just talked about. And help us, Lord, as we're walking through difficult things. And Lord, I know there are many here, again, in the hearing of my voice who are experiencing some form or fashion of difficulty, of suffering, of, of hardship. God, as they're walking that journey, may they look to Christ as their example. And say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to trust this to, to you, O oh Father, because you are worthy of my trust. And God, would you walk them through gently, graciously, through this, this thing, and bring them on the other side, more glorious, more beautiful reflection of Jesus Christ. Until we reach home, and now to Him who is able to do exceeding abundant beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To Him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever.